Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of the Cersei Institute Podcast Network is brought to you by our friends at New College Franklin, where they respect the sacrifices you have made as parents and teachers to educate your children in wisdom and virtue. But how do you sustain this during the college years? Through a robust exploration of the great books and the seven liberal arts in an environment of rich conversation, shared life, and spiritual discipleship, New College continues to build on the foundation that you have laid at home. New College students grow in wisdom and see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Take the next step in your education and join the conversation in beautiful Franklin, Tennessee. Come for a preview weekend or schedule a visit at your convenience. You can learn more at newcollegefranklin.org. That's newcollegefranklin.org. Hello and welcome to A Perpetual Feast. This is Andrew Kern, and normally you would hear me walk in on Wes Callahan reading, at which point we would initiate a discussion on Homer. In this case, that was dropped by the technology glitch, so I'm re-recording, and this is how it begins. Hello, Wes. What were you reading? <laughs> I was reading the opening lines uh, uh, in Greek, actually, of the Odyssey, but um, I was thinking that, um, that it, it, it pointed me back uh, because of some things that I've heard you say recently um, and because of a poem that a, a mutual friend of ours wrote. Um, Tom Banks recently wrote a poem uh, uh, in, uh, about um, the idea of returning back home. And I was reading this, this uh, the opening lines of the Odyssey in which a man attempts to get home. But he's trying to get home from uh, a disastrous situation, right? The Trojan War. And so I was thinking about the Iliad, actually, although I was reading the Odyssey, I was thinking about the Iliad. Um, and we haven't talked very much about the actual Iliad, though we've used it as a jumping off point for all kinds of other things to talk about. You know, <laughs> what do you think? Maybe we should talk about the Iliad today. Okay. I'm up for that. I like the Iliad. I figured you did. I like Yeah, yeah. I like the Iliad a lot. So okay, let me let me let me pretend I am a teacher, since I've just walked into and on you reading this. Let me pretend I'm a school teacher and I want to make you feel awkward and, and uncomfortable and and on the defensive. Cool. Because that's what we do, right? I'm familiar so, with that so, my, so all right, so here's my question for you. 
in three sentences or less, tell me what happens in the Iliad. What's the, what is the sentence length limit? <laughs> you're allowed. You're allowed one subordinate clause in each. <laughs> we'll 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 see. In three sentences or fewer, what happens in the Iliad? Uh, yeah, that's a that's a that's a great question, and um, uh, any good student and lover of the Iliad ought to be able to answer it. And I think I can. Uh, in the tenth year of the Trojan War, uh, Agamemnon, the leader of the Greek army that is attacking the the Trojans, offends the honor of Achilles, the greatest warrior of the Achaeans, and Achilles withdraws from the fighting in anger. Um, <clears throat> He asks Zeus, the high god, to avenge his honor by making the Trojans, the enemies, win for a while and his own side suffer, uh, which Zeus does. Um, even after Agamemnon makes an attempt at reconciliation, Achilles is so bitter that he stays out of the fighting until the tragedy happens, uh, the central tragedy of the story happens, which is the death of his own best friend, which, of course, he never intended. And he's co so consumed by grief that he... Um, uh, slaughters multitudes uh, of, of Trojans until finally the story ends with the king of the, uh, of, the, of the Trojans coming and begging for the body of his own son back. That's a, that's a brief. Wow, that was good. Uh, a brief what? A brief pricey of the story. But of course, uh, a, a summary, um, uh, you, you know, you know this, Andrew, a summary of a story, especially a summary of a poem is not the poem and can't do anything like that. So you're saying that now people haven't learned enough about the Iliad to be able to say they know the Iliad from what you just said? <laughs> something like that. Yeah, huh. something, something like that. What a ripoff. <laughs> okay, well, we better, we better help them some more then. All right. Okay. So, so there's the basic since story. I've taken on the... Pardon? So there's the basic story. Go, go ahead. Okay, since I've taken on the role of teacher, I'll keep playing this. Make okay. you feel awkward and defensive. Cool. Okay, so so where does the Iliad occur? Tell me about the the setting, the main setting, the settings. Right, right. The Iliad takes place uh, in Troy, or rather, uh, on the on the sandy beach, the battlefield uh, below the city of Troy, which is on a bluff, overlooking a little bay uh, near the mouth of the Hellespont, uh, the channel connecting the Aegean Sea and the Black Sea. Uh, and the Hellespont uh, opens into the uh, the Aegean Sea, which, of course, is the sea separating Greece and Asia Minor. And so uh, Troy is on the north northeast part of the Aegean Sea, uh, or up in the northern part of Asia Minor. Uh, so it, tr Troy is not in Greece. So this this is known as a great Greek poem. The story doesn't actually happen in Greece. It happens in Asia Minor, in in, in what came, became later known as Ionia. Uh, so, but didn't the Greeks think of that as part of Greece in their day? Uh, well, um, yes and no. Uh, later in the classical age, they certainly they certainly did. It was part of Greek land. Uh, in 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 Homer's time, um, they they felt less that it was part of a of a kind of a an, an ethnic uh, identity and an ethnic unity called you know the Greek land, uh, and they thought more about the independent, separate, sovereign city states that they were. So when they went and attacked the Trojans, they were just attacking another nation. Um, I don't think there's any. Um, there, there's nothing in the story to indicate that they thought of them as, as terribly alien people, but neither is there anything in the story of the Iliad that indicates they thought of them as fellow Greeks. Um, they speak, they can talk to each other, they can speak the same language, at least in the story. Um, but they're, they're, they're an enemy. 
So yeah, it's uh, Troy's Troy's in, in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey, by the way. So the site of Troy can still be visited, and the ruins have been or have been partially excavated. You ever been there? I have. I've been to Troy uh, once um, uh, about ten years ago, uh, leading a group of students to Greece, which we do periodically, and we visited Wait Troy. Wait a minute, that, that was that, ominous. That was really <laughs> ominous. What you just said. Was it? You were there ten ominous? years ago. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. Touche. Oh. So what should I be expecting then this year? A long journey home. A long journey A big home. battle. <laughs> you know, you might be onto something. Um, I should keep a keep an eye over my shoulder for giant creatures with one eye. Or maybe you should start designing a, a horse to get into the enemy camp. I could, if I considered myself one of the Greeks, which perhaps I do. Yeah, we, by the way, speaking of the horse, uh, at the site of Troy, they have a giant wooden horse, a reconstruction of a horse uh, with, un unfortunately, windows in the belly that you can look out of and a little castle on the top you can climb up and look out of. I think those would be dead giveaways if that were actually the shape of the horse. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but nearby so Helen, so now we know the real now we know the real reason Helen were, was able to identify windows inside. <laughs> I'm thinking that's not just a horse I see windows uh, in a, in a, in those a little, stupid a little Trojans <laughs> Aeneas, Aeneas says we must have been blinded yeah <laughs> people looking out windows pulling shape, peeping through the drapes <laughs> there's, a, there's a little Turkish village near the site of, of Troy, uh, and um, uh, in uh, I think it was 2004, there was a you know a, a movie made called Troy with Brad Pitt and Sean Bean and some other guys in it, and uh, some of our our listeners uh, may have seen it. Uh, if you haven't, I don't think you've, it's any great loss. Uh, but for that movie, uh, the movie makers uh, built a, a huge uh, wooden horse for the movie, and then they kept that 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 that, that set after the movie is done and it's in the, in the village square of this little uh, Turkish village, not far from the site of Troy. And it actually what it was fine. probably more like what the, what that tro horse would have looked like in the Trojan horse, uh, Trojan war. There's no windows in it and towers. It's kind of scrappy and rough looking. And it looks like it might be something uh, people threw together hastily as a sacrifice to appease an angry goddess, which is what they said they were trying to do. Yeah. It's yeah. worth a, worth a visit. If our listeners. So where can in the Iliad does the, where in the Iliad does the story of the Trojan horse come up? It doesn't, actually. Uh, and many people who haven't read the Iliad or, or forgot what they read uh, think that we have the death of Achilles and the end of the war and the Trojan horse there, but none of those come up in the Iliad. They come up between the Iliad and the Odyssey. The Iliad ends uh, with the war still going on. The, war, the end of the war is still months off. Huh. Huh. So, yeah. Okay. So it so happens at Troy, which is in Asia Minor. Yeah, the Trojan War is the backdrop, but, but the stories are not about the Trojan War. The Trojan War is the backdrop. The story is about something else, and it happens in Asia Minor. Yeah. So, so where else does it happen? Well, um, the, all, all of the action, all the human action takes place in the plains of Troy, but there, but, but, uh, there are, uh, we, we cut away to Mount Olympus. And so there's, there's, I don't know if you can call it action, but there's certainly conversation and some action, um, among the gods on, on, uh, on, uh, Mount Olympus, uh, which is of course mm -hmm. the dwelling of the gods. Uh, and sometimes uh, there's some brief action among some of the gods on Mount Ida, which is near Troy. 
uh, and on an island over uh, uh, in the in the sea watches things and so there are various uh, you know mountains and islands uh, and and plains where the gods watch and sometimes the gods come down to Troy and they mix it up with the humans too so the so the, wow. the the human activity is on the plains of Troy in the battlefield the divine activity is there and on their divine dwellings none of the action so takes place. none of the action takes place in Greece yeah although there's allusions to things in Greece yeah Okay, so it's long enough that the people will talk to each other maybe and tell stories about elsewhere. But basically what you're telling me is that there's two two settings, the the plains of Troy and Olympus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and but the plains of Troy, I mean, the, the, the Greek camp on the plains and the city of Troy up above, but 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 the battlefield of Troy there. Yeah, so those are the those are the two settings. Okay. And the vast majority takes place among the humans on the uh, uh, on the on the plains of Troy. Uh, with the with the occasional cuts away to the gods, but the humans and their activities dominate the story. Do the humans ever go up to Olympus? No, they don't. Do the gods <clears throat> ever come down to the? You said the gods do come down to the plains, didn't you? Yeah, the, yeah, they do, and the the gods come down to the to the to the plains of Troy and they mix it up there. Uh, and the humans and the gods will interact, but only when the gods come down to the plains. Humans never show up. Uh, uh, in the in the dwellings of the gods, uh, at least not in the Iliad. There are a couple of myths where that happens, but it's very very rare. This is fascinating to me because you're making me think of things I've never really thought about before. So that very question was on my head. So is is has any human ever gone up to Olympus? And what then then when you said that in other myths, a couple do. We know that from mythology that some heroes go down to the underworld. Aeneas, yeah. for example, yeah. um, Odysseus, for example, yeah. but they never go up to Olympus, do they? No. In fact, I said, a couple, I said, I mentioned a couple of myths, but I can't even think of any. I can, I can think of times when humans hobnob with the gods in other settings at wedding feasts, at banquets, but I cannot actually think of any times when the humans ever go to Olympus to the abode of the gods. Ganymede? See the exception? Oh, good. Very good. Yeah. Uh, um, that's an exception. Can how did you get there is an interesting question. Thought. Yeah. Zeus, well, Zeus it certainly doesn't climb. Right, right. That's a good point. No human ever uh, ascends voluntarily to Olympus. Ganymede, uh, that's, that's, a, that's a, a good point. But that's the only exception I can think of, and he's taken there by Zeus. Can you think of anybody else? I can't. No. I can't, and I've never, as I said, I've never thought about this before, but how very interesting that in the Greek mind, you could, you everybody's going to go to the underworld, but even a few people could go to the underworld, the domain of Pluto, of Hades, yeah. everybody, you know, a, a few heroes could go there and actually come back. Orpheus, yeah, I think, yeah, was first. Hercules goes there, Odysseus, Aeneas. Uh, Theseus, they go there voluntarily. They, they even Theseus, yeah, they even force the gates of Hades, so they can take Hades by storm. They can't stay there, um, but they can go there yeah. voluntarily. Nobody ever goes to Olympus. And and here we again we see if I can be. I don't know. I feel like I'm being a little cheap here, but let me try it anyway. Here we see again <laughs> another analogy between the Christian teaching and the Greek teaching, where or or the you know ancient mythology where. In the gospel, Christ as a man goes to the underworld, he goes to Hades, and he tears, he tears the gate down, right? He conquers the gates of Hades, yeah, takes yeah. captivity captive, but then he ascends. 
He ascends through all the circles of heaven, past Olympus, right? He goes to the to the highest heaven, to the yeah. heaven of heavens, seats at the right hand of the sits at the right hand of the Father, is declared Lord in Christ, and now can fill all things. Very different, very, very different from anything nice. the Greeks had to offer. That's right. And, and uh, Jesus Christ does that not only as God, but as a man. He takes our human nature with Thank him you. to the heavens. Yeah, that's a good that's a good. That list. is some. Thanks. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, I just I, I, I like that analogy you made. Christ does go to the heavens uh, and seats himself at the right hand of the father. Uh, nowhere else in human history do we have stories of men that I can think of, uh, of, of voluntarily going uh, to, uh, into the transcendent abode of the, you know, of whoever their deities were. Yeah. And what, what I love about that is exactly what you said. I mean, I love everything about it. But what you said about how it's a man, right? I, I think I've, be, I've become convinced that Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, in the past, let me put it this way. In the past, I've tended to read Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 as another sermon in the Bible, therefore really important. What I haven't really reflected on until this year during, during the Paschal season, during Easter season, was how, in fact, I think— and I'm, you know, people can correct me on this, but I think in Acts 2, what you're reading is the point, the the message that the rest of the New Testament explains. And he, he said, he ends that sermon, you know, he describes him going into Hades, conquering death, ascending into heaven. And he ends that sermon by saying, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. And, and what what triggered my consciousness while I was reading it, what triggered my awareness of what is going on a little bit more, is that what you said, that this is a man, this is a man who has ascended into heaven and has been declared both Lord and Christ. And when the Father says, Lord and Christ, this is, as we know, it's what the Jews have been looking for all along. There's something very specific there. Right. There's something very big and very specific. It's not just sort of a bumper sticker. Jesus Christ is Lord, but it's he is the Lord that everybody has been looking for. And there is no higher name than Lord. Right. Because in the New Testament, Lord is the is the word for for Jehovah. Yeah. So. So he he has given him his name. He has given him a name which is above every name. And as man, he has declared him Lord in Christ. Right now, he's always been Lord in Christ as God, but he's achieved something for us as a man that nobody in the Iliad, nobody in Greek mythology, nobody in Roman mythology, nobody in any other mythology. They've never, so far as I know, no other mythology has ever even imagined the achievement that Christ made, that Christ accomplished in in his ascent into heaven and being seated at the right hand of the Father. Yeah. I can't get enough of that. No, that's 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 tremendous. I agree. I've um, I've been convinced for a long time, more and more convinced as time goes by, that um, uh, that we that we we need, uh, especially in classical Christian education, uh, and we've said this a number of times, both you and I in our in our conversations, uh, but we need in classical Christian education to have uh, to uh, to have uh, history as a central study, so we have the perspective that's necessary, but especially uh, the history of the church, uh, because when I'm trying to interpret the New Testament. Um, I miss things like that 
so much uh, because I, I've got my own biases, my own blinders, my own slants, given my upbringing and who I've known and where I've gone and what I've read. And so I miss things like this. And that's one thing that I missed for a long time. Uh, this summer, uh, in our in our Hill Abbey Summer Hall program, we read through all of Irenaeus's Against Heresies, and it was far more tremendous and profound than I'd ever imagined. And he touched on just the point you were just making, uh, uh, in, a, in a, brilliantly, that Jesus Christ, uh, as God and as man, just as importantly as man, uh, um, because and this is important because of what it does for the restoration of our human nature, uh, us individuals with the same nature as as our Lord. Uh, uh, but Irenaeus was tremendous on this against the Gnostic heretics who say that God couldn't possibly take on human flesh because flesh is evil and God would never be evil. So you have to have the lower emanations and then demiurge and all that, blah, blah, blah. But Irenaeus says scripturally, and he, and he, and he refers to just the speech of Peter that you're talking about in Acts. Uh, you're practically channeling Irenaeus there, Andrew, and I love it. <laughs> wow. What so I, I read these church fathers, like, and Irenaeus does it again. I read these fathers, and they, and they, and they help me to see with, with new eyes what's there in the scripture that I'm blinded to because of my environment, my modern circumstances and my, uh, you know, my upbringing as good as that was and the reading I've done. So these, these early church fathers, um, uh, and uh, Irenaeus, especially on my mind, point, uh, point out things that I uh, would have missed over and over again. And by the way, he quoted the Iliad uh, frequently, huh. sometimes, sometimes positively. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. It was uh, a shadow. What's that? It was a shadow. The Iliad was, was a shadow. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the one of the uh, the reasons I love the, the the church fathers is is because coming from that culture, that Hellenistic culture, and being being so uh, so uh, versed and learned in uh, in what the pagans uh, had studied, because for many of them it was part of their education until they were converted, or even uh, if they were converted as children, it was part of their education, a classical education. But the church fathers uh, are so good on on on, um, on teaching us to read through Christian eyes and not to get caught up too much in the in a, in a, in a idolatrous you know view of the, of the of the classics like Homer and Virgil and so on, and yet not to discard it, but to find them as glorious um, uh, prefigurings of what uh, of what, what Christ was going to bring. And that's one of the reasons I've, I've I've liked so much the conversations about the Iliad with you because uh, you keep bringing us back to that. Well, thanks. So, oh, yeah. Oh, you know pleasure. what? Here, here's, a, here's a thought that may have some value. The reason that we need to study, especially church history, is because I'll look at it two ways. Is because one, it's our family story, right? It's yeah, we we yeah. are we are re- we are responsible to carry on the heritage we have received from our parents. Absolutely. To 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 hand it on to our children. And yeah. if we if we lose our family riches, what do our kids have? Right? And so so the family story is the church history. But even more than that, what we need to know is Jesus. Right? Yeah, and that. But how that, is Jesus? That's, that's what the church fathers actually are handing on to us, right? They're telling us that very same thing, which is why it'd be such a tragedy if we had dropped it, because they're because they're telling us just what you were saying. You're very much in the spirit of them. Jesus is central to everything, everything that we do and talk about, or should be, and fills everything. Yeah, well, not just should be. He and is. So if, recognize it. Yeah, and so if we're if what we're if what we're wanting is Jesus, 
Okay, we can't have Jesus as a disattached, disembodied Gnostic Jesus sitting up in heaven spiritually. Right, he has right. to be the actual Jesus of the New Testament, who is at the same time sitting up in heaven physically, <laughs> physically. Right, right. right. And yet and manifesting himself here among us. Present here, yes. Present yeah. here spiritually, but also present here physically in yeah. his body. And if, yeah. we, if we don't think of Jesus as present in his body, the church, then we're not thinking of the Jesus revealed by the Bible. And therefore, we can't have this Jesus who, who uh, was on the earth for 33 years and disappeared into a cloud. That's not the New Testament Jesus. Yeah. The New Testament Jesus is the one that, the one that is living in his body, the church. And, so, and, and that body, the church, has a history, has a story. Has, it's almost like it was, grown, it was like Adam, created fully mature. You know, mm-hmm. and, and it still is. And it's, it, it, you know, in other words, we can't go back to the baby period of church history and then it grows up. It doesn't evolve or anything. It's created by Christ, fully mature, when he gives his Holy Spirit to the apostles in Acts chapter 2, and Peter gives that sermon. But the whole story, the whole next 2,000 years is the story of his body, the church, which is him. It, it, it is the fullness of him who fills all things. We can't let either the church or Jesus shrink. Otherwise, otherwise we, we won't. I mean, he's going to. In our minds, he's going to shrink. We can't possibly get that big in our minds. As Augustine put it, narrow is the mansion of my soul, and large thou it that thou mayest dwell therein. That at least he did that when he was writing King James English. But we we just have to let Jesus be as big as he really is if we're going to follow him in in the confidence that he deserves. Anyway, sorry, that was a digression. I, I, know, I agree. I, 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 I love it. I, I, love I, no, I don't believe you in digressions, Wes. <laughs> That's not a digression. The Iliad led us here. This is beautiful. The, the Iliad led us here. <laughs> because, I mean, all right, just to, just to continue the, the digression briefly, we can't go back, uh, uh, we, can, we, can, we cannot go back and study the classics like the Iliad and the Aeneid as though Christianity had never happened, as though Christianity had never come, come along and told us how to understand as Christians those classics that we love so much. We can't go back to that. We can never recover that. Um, you might call it um, that innocence, but uh, that's a terrible way to put it because it makes it sound like the kind of. I would of just call it ignorance. Well, yeah, and and um, um, and how about an innocent ignorance? We can't go back to that, uh, but no, we would never want to because because the uh, what um, in line with what you were just saying, the church uh, has uh, com- comes along uh, uh, through the scriptures, and then the, the later church. Uh, church fathers and teachers t- helping us to interpret the scripture. They help us to understand all things, including these classics. So we, we can't go back to the time, but I would never want to. I want to understand them properly, the way God wants me to understand them. Hi, this is Andrew. Just to let you know, at this point, there was a little technological glitch, and a part went blank. I said to Wes at this point that the term theology is one coined by Aristotle, and then he picked it up from there. Uh, you're right. Aristotle coins the term theology, and you, we couldn't have many of the terms that we use to talk about Christianity if we didn't have the church fathers borrowing from pagan antiquity and their terms. 
hypostasis and and uh, and homoousios and theology and logos. Logos. Wait a minute. That's a biblical word. <laughs> uh -huh. Because they took it from the pagans and turned it to its proper use. Hmm. Just like, I, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, um, the word logos uh, was uh, uh, prof profoundly uh, embedded in, uh, in pagan philosophy, these groping pagans. And the logos stood for you know, much, much more than we, we commonly run into people saying logos means a word, but it means much more than just a word. It's, it's the, you know, the pattern, the principle behind all things, you know, the, the rhythm. C.S. Lewis is wonderful uh, on, on, this, on, on the word logos, only he uses the word Tao in his book, The Abolition of Man. But the word logos means exactly the same thing that Tao meant in ancient Chinese philosophy. And the, and the Chinese translations of John 1 use the word Tao. In the beginning was the Tao, and the Tao was with God, and the Tao was God. Uh, so it's a so so logos, yeah, has had this profound meaning in ancient philosophy. But you could tell in the way it was used that it was used uh, uh, in their groping toward what is this principle, this this pattern, this reason, this this uh, uh, reason, uh, reason. Yeah, the, this reason behind all things. Reason in the broadest sense and imaginable. Reason is a great word, although it also gets. Uh, trashed very often. Um, mangled. Yeah, mangled. It, it's such an important word that we're doing our conference on reason next summer. And I'm and so glad one you of are. The, that was a great choice. I'm glad you think so. And one of, one of the reasons is because I wanted to explore, I, I've been thinking about the whole thought process, right? Where um, I talk, I've over the last year, I've done these talks where you, you, ha you when, if you're going to teach somebody, there's four things that you have to attend to four things that you have to cultivate. If you teach a child to do these four things, you will have a smart child or educated child that is pay attention, remember, imitate and bring things into a harmony. But those four things are, I would argue, reason, right? That's, that's what you do to activate the reason and, and that's what reason's goal is. Yeah. So I like that. we're going like to, we're going we're gonna to explore that, but also I was thinking how reason has changed over the ages. And, and, um, one of the things that's happened is, um, Greek reason was perfected by Christian reason. Mm -hmm. Christian reason was incredibly well refined. And mm -hmm. then enlightenment reason came along and reduced it to something fragmented, fragmented it. Yeah. And we're living in the fragmentation of reason. Now. And if we're going to educate one of the reasons that pe reasons, one of the reasons that people respond to Christian classical education, I believe, is because they intuit that here is the restoration of our mind that we're looking for. And the way we educate children in our culture fragments their minds. And that's not healthy. That leads to self-destructive behavior yeah. and social activity. That fundamentally so what, is not, what, is not reason. Right. And, and if we don't get back to a biblical conception of reason, the whole thing, we're, we're spinning our wheels ultimately. Ultimately. Because, because ultimately, the biblical conception of reason is Jesus. Where <laughs> we come back to that. In the beginning was the logos. I think I, yeah. I think I don't know what it says in Latin. You know, Principio Erat Verbum. Okay, so that's where a word comes from. 
Yeah. Maybe we can blame the Latins for cutting it down so far. But the but the whole conception of of um, logos is, as you said, so rich and so gigantic. But you know what? I've only got eight minutes left for this talk, so I got to bring you back to the, the <laughs> okay. important quiz that I'm giving you here. Okay. So we talked about what what happened. We talked about where the Iliad happens, uh-huh. and we got distracted by these unimportant things. So so you gave me a three sentence ish summary of the whole Iliad in terms of its plot line, but what happens in, well, actually I have one more question about the, the, the location. We've okay. talked about being the battlefield of Troy. What are the parts of that location? Generally, you know, the major parts, what, is it all just, you sit there out on the, out on the battlefields where the bodies are lying around? The, well, being eaten by dogs. We we see we really see three parts in the in the Iliad. There's the battlefield itself, where the where the Greeks, uh, whom Homer always calls he never calls the Greeks, he calls them the Achaeans, but Greeks is fine. Where the Greeks and the Trojans um, uh, encounter each other. So much happens on the battlefield, but we see a lot happening uh, in the Greek camp, uh, which is uh, the ships drawn up on the shore, their camps. There are tents pitched around it and a wall built around it. So the Greek camp, a lot of action takes place. And then in the city of Troy as well. So you have the, you have the Greek camp and the Trojan city and then the battlefield where the, where the two collide. Is that, is that what you're after? Yeah, that's, re- that's really interesting to me because, because we've got Troy then, which I think is a pretty old city by then, right? Yeah, uh, several thousand years, they say. Wow. Wow. But as I recall, who built the walls of Troy that they were that they were fighting behind there <laughs> well according to the iliad a couple of the gods had been uh had had been uh tricked into building the walls of, the, of troy uh poseidon and and uh and apollo uh, by, by uh, an ancestor of priam into building the walls of troy and then they were cheated on their wages and and uh, so now they're uh, interested in seeing the whole thing come down again ah uh-huh. okay. Uh-huh. okay that's interesting so the walls of troy are god built uh-huh. I imagine being God built, they're pretty impressive. <laughs> but the gods who built them are angry. Yeah. Yeah. For not being paid properly. Huh. Yeah. That, where that's, the, what, where, but, that's part of the reason for the fall of Troy. There's other, other mythological explanations that's destined to fall for other reasons, but that is part of it. Yeah. But, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, now that spoiler, you just told us Troy's going to. Oh, yeah. That's not in this story. Okay. So then. So then. The Greek camp, I believe you said it has walls too. Why do they need walls? They have ships. What are you talking about? Walls. Describe the Greek camp for me. Well, part of the, the, the Greek camp, um, according to the second book of the Iliad, uh, the so-called catalog of ships, which enumerates the ships and the leaders and the number of men in each contingent and the number of ships, if you calculate them, uh, in fact, Thucydides tells us this. Thucydides tells us if we average, if we take the average of the high and low numbers Homer gives us, it's about 85 men per ship, and we calculate the number of ships. We get uh, there's almost 1,200 ships actually. So Helen's uh, Helen is the face that launched more than a thousand ships. Uh, we come up with um, uh, with you know a, a, an army of you know probably well over 100,000 men. It's a large army. So you've got 1,200 ships drawn up along the shore, and uh, my students and I every year try and calculate this. So this would be, uh, um, even if you drew up the ships in, in, uh, in several ranks, this, this, this camp, the Greek camp, would be huge. It would be, you know, on the order of a mile long uh, and, and uh, you know, a quarter mile, half mile deep, gigantic. And it's where all the Greek 
uh, all the Greeks uh, uh, live during the 10 years of the war. They I have, think it's a half mile deep if it's on a beach, though. You said it's going to be a half mile. How can it be so deep if it's on a beach? Let's uh, say depth, width. I'm looking for uh, extent from the from the from the shoreline inward inland. Ah, okay, okay. So, so the idea is this is this is a huge camp, uh, and although they have trade ships, we're told that Agamemnon's got trade ships bringing him wine and delicacies because he's Agamemnon. Uh, but uh, other than that, the Greeks never ha- are never able to go home, and so they've got everything they need in, in the camp. It's like the, the Greek camp. When we think camp, we think of you know a tent and a Dutch oven and you know lawn chairs. But this is a city, <laughs> and they have to protect it just like Troy has to be protected. And uh, and also the, the wall is built uh, in the in uh, at the end of the seventh book of the Iliad because the Trojans. Uh, um, whom Zeus is now goading in response to Achilles' prayer, the Trojans are winning and doing so well that they're threatening the very camp of the Greeks. So the, Greek, the Greeks have to build a wall, a defensive wall, which will play a role in the coming books. So it's a city. It's a city that needs defense, just like Troy is a city that needs defense. Does it have, have roads and stuff? Like, like a, they, they certainly I mean, not, obviously not asphalt, but... What, what, yeah, they would have they would have and a land, they would have streets, they would even have shops and so on. Because there's not only the warriors, but you know, uh, who are all the? How, how do you support an army with merchants and traders and and unfortunately prostitutes, thieves, thieves and you've got you and, and servants and, and and helpers, and so they uh, and they have they have chariots and wagons. We we hear about both of those. So they've got a a, a layout with a you know grid work going between the camps and the and the tents and the ships, and the tents really are like are like log houses. You know, they're like uh, fortresses that grow into yeah. kind of rustic palaces. So it really is a city in nearly every sense of the term. Hi, this is Andrew again. At this point, Wes and I got separated again by a technological glitch called the weather. And we probably said three or four more sentences, but and then said our fond farewells and look forward to meeting each other again online. Um, but we'll just end it like this for you. Thank you for listening to this podcast, and we look forward to communicating with you again in the near future. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.